Welcome back. In today's episode, we are talking about the founding documents and other important ones that helped shape America, from the Treaty of Paris to George Washington being elected president. Welcome to History Talks with History Buff 1836, a podcast about the presidents of the United States of America, a look inside to what happened in America during their presidency. Here is your host, History Buff 1836. The first major document we are talking about is the Declaration of Independence. This has to be one of the baddest breakup letters in history because this broke up the colonies from Britain. But the independence was not official yet because they were in the middle of a war. And if the war did not work out in their favor, aka they lost, all the signers would be charged for treason. In the Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson, it listed a series of grievances of why the Patriots hated being under British control in King George III and why they wanted to be free. So let's take a look at those grievances in the letter itself with the opening first. When in course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's pause right here. Unalienable rights are rights given to us by God, and those rights were life, liberty, and property. But Thomas Jefferson, who wrote Declaration of Independence, changed it to the pursuit of happiness. And this belief came from John Locke in the Two Treaties of Government. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. It goes on for a little bit more longer why it's necessary for those two self-governing bodies need to be separate. However, the way they are talking, they are talking, it can imply to any two politically connected countries slash colonies. Now let's take a look at the list of grievances or reasons they filled. They feel that King George and Britain is horrible for the colonies and why they feel they need to be separated. He has refused his asset to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his asset should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. Meaning, he outlawed the colonial governors have the right to pass laws of important matters of what's going on right now in the colonies. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would replenish the right of the representation in the legislative, a right 
inadmissible to them and formidable to tyrants only, meaning he did not want to pass any more laws. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with many firmness, for mainly firmness, his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such resolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of alienation, have returned to the people at large. For their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions, convulsions within. His endeavor to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrant migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his asset to laws for establishing judiciary, judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices in the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent heather swarms of officers to harass our people and to eat out of their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislators. He has affected to render the military independent and of superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to his jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and acknowledged by our laws, giving his asset to their acts of pretended legislation, recording large bodies of armed troops among us for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murderers which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring providence, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending, for suspending our own legislators and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has a big dedicated government care by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravished our coast, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He's at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, dissolution, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and predatory, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us, and he has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the mercenaries, Indian savages, 
whose known rule of warfare is of undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. After that, they sum up the point of this in closing argument of the of this in the closing argument of the letter saying they tried to resolve the matter before getting to this point, but their request did not work, and they were all continued to be oppressed. And Thomas Jefferson dropped the mic. Independence against Britain, it didn't really make it official. The war against them too had already started before the signing of it, and the war would make it official if they won, which in fact they did win. If they did lost, all these signers would be tried and hung for treason. The colonists were fed up with asking King George III for help with no avail, as well as him violating their rights and abusing the contracts they had between them. They decided to call it quits with them. King George didn't respond right away, and this was due to the time it takes for news to get across the ocean. But he did respond on October 31st, 1776, saying, quote, For daring and desperate is the spirit of those leaders whose object has always been dominion and power, that they have now openly renounced all allegiance to this to the crown and all political connection with this country. Next, I want to talk about a piece that was published in the colonies newspapers that rekindled the colonist call and fight for independence. Common Sense was a pamphlet written by Thomas Paine. The purpose was to call out the tyranny of the British monarchical government and spark the patriots and the loyalists to switch to patriots and to call them out. It was published in January of 1776, almost a full year after the outbreak of Revolutionary War. The Battle of Lexington and Concord happened in April of 1775. During the time between the start of the war to common sense being published, there were many calls to renounce their ties with Britain. And that was followed up with reluctances. Benjamin Franklin even said, quote, When we are no longer fascinated with the idea of a speedy reconciliation, continuing on with, we shall exert ourselves to some purpose. So then, things will be done by halves. End quote. Albert Gary even said that some colonists were too afraid at the word independence. Now, I will not be reading the full text because it is about 30 pages long, and that would be way too long for this podcast episode, or any podcast episode. There are four sections to the pamphlet in the, in, in the introduction where he presented his ideas and arguments. The main section was about the English government and where he bashed how their government set up their, their constitution. In this section, Payne wrote why we needed the government to protect us against such injustice and tyranny. The English one was not. Real quick, to understand the English Constitution, I want to go over briefly. So it was the Constitution of the United Kingdom, also known as the British Constitution. It established the United Kingdom in Northern Ireland as a political body. The second section continued his fashion on government, but he concentrates on, on the monarchy and how the monarchy doesn't really do any good and makes a lot of suffering to people. Section 3, Payne really honed in on what crisis is the colonies are facing, and it's really foolish to think being loyal to, the, to, loyal to a very distant tyrant king is going to help us. In reality, it, in reality, it's going to ruin us. It's going to destroy the colonies, and the relationship between the colonists and the king slash parliament is destroyed. 
and can't be rebuilt back to the days before all the taxes and new laws they thought were tyrannical was placed. The last section, number four, is all about addressing the haters of the war, telling the readers that we can win this war, we can win the independence, and for most Americans, they were unified again, and the pamphlet sparked a sense of hope that we could win the war and we could win independence. However, some of the loyalists, if not all, didn't like the pamphlet. They hated it. They felt betrayed by Payne and other patriots. Moving on to the next document I want to talk about is the first document that created a government for the newly formed and independent country, the Articles of Confederation. Which, spoiler alert, if you didn't already know, the Articles of Confederation failed. And they rewrote and redesigned a complete new government. But before that, we need to understand the Articles of Confederation. In Articles of Confederation, the federal power had little to no power, and the states had basically all the power. Article 1 established the name for the country. Quote, the title of this confederacy shall be, quote, the United States of America, end quote. Because they were united in separate states, they met found in Article 2. The states would keep their sovereignty. Article 2 reads, quote, Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence in every power, jurisdiction, and right, which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States and Congress assembled, end quote. States would basically be a league. What did the Articles of Confederation didn't do, and what did it lack? Well, it liked a strong federal government. The federal government could not raise taxes, and the newly country was in debt from the war and couldn't pay it off. The federal government could not raise an army, an army or just any military force, and those are important to protect the country and its citizens from any domestic or foreign threats or attacks. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that. Their Congress was also very weak, with only one house and only one representative per state. They hardly could do anything because they needed 9 of the 13 states to agree before passing the laws, and having only one representative per state makes it a little harder. And if you look at our Congress with two houses, it takes a lot of work for both houses to pass a law to put it on the president's decks. It's probably much harder with one house, but I'll explain our current setup soon. As the states were separate, they couldn't manage their own foreign policy. Here's why this is a bad, and it harmed the country. If the states was able to do anything they wanted, and the national government had little control all the states could do, that meant the states had more control, and if Britain wanted to attack, states could decide if they wanted to help out or stay out. In summary, the national government could not raise an army, conduct foreign policy, regulate trade and taxes. With so many problems with it, the 13 states did not accept and ratified the Articles of Confederation until 1781. Congress did not have the power to regulate trade in between states and between states, with states acted independently with with trades from different states and countries, states would often impose tariffs, aka taxes, on each other and they would wear high tariffs to protect the merchants. This caused a strain on relationships between the states because the government could not raise taxes and resolve trade tensions between the states led to many of the Americans questioning the value of the Articles of Confederation and how it can actually serve the Americans in a good way. The national government lacked authority. Lack of authority was even more apparent when there was a rebellion in 1786 at Massachusetts. This had been known as Shays' Rebellion. The tensions leading up to the rebellion started during the American Revolutionary War. 
Many farmers had left their crops to fight the British. The, ta the tax of producing the nationals' food was left in the responsibility of fewer and fewer people, with greater demand of food and less and less supply. Led to higher prices, farmers had to borrow money, and once the war ended, prices dropped, and many farmers were unable to pay their debt. Farmers in Massachusetts were hit hard with the price drop on top of the falling prices. Many farmers in there with a lot of debt, Massachusetts was raising their taxes. Farmers were left with even more debt. A man by the name of Daniel Shea went to Massachusetts, gathered over 2,000 farmers, and they attacked the courthouse. Massachusetts official quickly raised an army to fight the rebellion. Even though Shea's rebellion ended, many leaders worried about the consequences of the rebellion, calling on a revision of the Articles. Shortly after the fuss of the Articles were weak and um, needed to be fixed, a call was sent out to the states for the spring of 1787 to revise the Articles, the Articles of Confederation. And since it was not working out and America needed help, and the national government was basically useless with what it was allowed to do, since most of it was left up to the states. The states responded pretty easily. 74 were chosen to go to the meeting, but only 55 participated in the meeting. The only state that did not send delegates was Rhode Island, who all their politicians were 100% opposed to the strengthening of the national government. Real quick, let's talk about some of the key delegates then we'll move on to some of the missing prominent leaders during the Revolutionary War era. Key delegates were George Washington. Even though Washington had retired at the end of the Revolutionary War, he decided to attend to help influence and even help to influence more leaders to attend. He even rarely participated in debates, but as president of the convention, he guided the debates and other proceedings. James Madison. Madison contributed more to the Constitution than any other delegate, that was in attendance. He was also the floor leader where he took a very detailed note of the proceedings in the debates. He became known as the father of the Constitution. Benjamin Franklin, senior statesman of the convention. Even though Franklin's health was failing and he had to miss some of the proceedings, he played an important role as a consolidator or mediator, a person who settles the debates during some of the most heated debates. Governor Morris. Morris delivered more speeches than Madison and has been given credit of giving the Constitution the language it has. Alexander Hamilton, yes, the guy who has a very well-known Broadway musical turned into somewhat of a movie written by Lin-Manuel Miranda after him. Hamilton served as a secretary to Washington during the war. He was deeply admired. He also deeply admired the British system and was one of the biggest advocates of a strong national government. He wanted a sole, a sole executive leader chosen for life which came close to a monarchy and sort of a dictatorship. Now, some of the key leaders during the American Revolutionary Revolution era that was missing was John Adams in England and in Holland as a diplomatic representative. Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, was serving as minister to France. Thomas Paine was in Europe trying to sell his idea for his Iron Bridge invention. However, Jefferson and Adams managed to influence some of those proceedings with letters in Adams' newly written book. So let's get into the actual convention. The meeting did not get off to a smooth start. Only two states' delegates showed up to the Pennsylvania State House on the opening day because some were delayed because of the colonists having dirt roads, time which were popular in the way alive. 
With all the spring rain, the colonists had those dirt floor, dirt roads, became mud roads, and were not easily traveled on. The minimum number of members in attendance was met on May 25th with 29 delegates from seven states. And meetings finally began. The first order was to set up rules and proceedings. One of those was to select a main leader of the convention that called it as a president. Think of a general manager of a store or a restaurant. This is what they would do. They would be in control of the debates and other discussions of what they were planning on. They unanimously elected George Washington as the president of the convention. Another rule they adopted was to the whole convention in private. They did this because there was already a lot of public curiosity and pressure, and they did not want that to get in the way of what the intention was. They also wanted a place where they can freely speak their minds about the government and changing the government without the criticism from the public. Another very important thing they did was decide to scrap the Articles of Confederation and create a new entirely government. But the question and debates that followed was what and how are we going to replace it with? Again, the convention's sole purpose was to revise the Articles of Confederation. Some of the delegates believed that there was more than revising. James Madison came with an outline for a new constitution. Alexander Hamilton declared the articles were, quote, unfit for war and peace, and, quote, within five days, the proposal of writing a new constitution was adopted on May 29th. Now, the Great Compromise was about how the American people are going to be representative in government, which consisted of the Virginia Plan and the New Jersey Plan. The Virginia Plan, proposed by Edmund Rudolph of Virginia, written by James Madison, included that the federal government would have three separate branches. Those would be the legislature, executive, and judicial. Congress would be the legislature, and it would have two houses. The houses of representatives in the Senate and both houses, the number of representatives would be based on population. The people would elect the members in the House of Representatives and the House of Representatives would appoint people for the Senate. Congress would have all the powers that it had under the Articles of Confederation, plus the power to make laws for, for the states and override state laws and force states to obey the national laws that were created. Congress would also have the power to choose the judicial branch members as well as the president. However, multiple weeks and weeks of debating the New Jersey plan was proposed, and it was by the delegate of William Patterson from New Jersey. It also called for three branches of government and granted the national government more power than the Articles of Confederation, but it differed from the Virginia plan all states, big or small, would have an equal number of representatives in Congress. In Congress. Just like the Articles of Confederation, in Congress would only have one house and would be elected by the state legislature rather than the people. Congress would choose several people to serve in the executive power, and the people would have the power to appoint the judicial branch. However, and after an after an other round of debates, the Great Compromise was settled on. The Great Compromise was propo was proposed by Roger Sherman by Connecticut, and it consisted of Congress of two houses, a House of Representatives and a Senate. A state's representation would be based on their population. In the House of Representatives, the Senate was based on the New Jersey plan of each state. No matter the size of the state, we get two representatives in the Senate. On July 16th, almost two months after the convention started, Sherman's plan was accepted by the delegates. 
A following compromise was the Three-Fifths Compromise. This would settle the debate of whether or not slaves and, sl and states would count toward the population. Majority of the Southerners wanted their slaves to count. Northerners argued since slaves could not vote, then they shouldn't count toward the population. The delegates came to the agreement that three-fifths of the slaves in any states would be counted toward population for, rep for representation and taxation. This compromise has been seen as a bad thing. Many view people view it as the framers approved slavery, but it, it was quite the opposite. Many framers disapproved slavery, but only accepted this compromise to keep the convention and the new government alive. The new compromise the compromise would have been removed once the thirteenth amendment was added in eighteen sixty five. As they finished, the delegates finished the constitution. They did a few more things to make sure it was all in order. Governor Morris was elected to head the Committee on Style, where he formed and organized the constitution and formed the language that is used today. They formed the State House on September 17, 1787, to have the delegates sign their names to the document, and it was time to present the document to the states to approve, even though some delegates were unhappy with the actual document because it didn't have the Bill of Rights yet to get that, and we'll get to that just in a second. The ratification of the newly created Constitution was a lengthy process. The final draft without the Bill of Rights was sent to the states to approve of on September 27, 1787. However, the next 10 months, the states would hear arguments from Federalists and Anti-Federalists. The Federalist Papers was a collection of 85 essays published in New York newspapers between 1787 and 1788, written unanimously at first, but later James Madison, John Adams, and John Jay were known as the writers. They were written to argue the fact that we need the Constitution in why ratifying it is important. To save time, we were only going to be talking about numbers 10, 51, 70, and 78. First, number 10, written by James Madison, titled The Utility of the Union as a Safeguard Against Domestic Faction Insurrection. End quote. James Madison wrote this to make two different arguments on democracy and republic, why the Constitution was laid out, and how America is a combination of those but mainly a constitutional republic. Federalist 51 was also written by James Madison. It was about checks and balances between the different government departments. He wanted to talk about what it was and why we needed it in our constitution. Remember, the Federalist Papers were advocating for the constitution and were informing the Americans about this new government. Federalist number 70 was written by Alexander Hamilton, and where he argues from, for the favor of the unitary executive, which was created by Article 2. With the current Articles of Confederation, we don't have a strong executive branch, and with the Constitution, they fixed that by creating a president. Federalist 78, written by Alexander Hamilton, where he discusses the judicial review, arguing for an indecent of the judiciary from the other two branches. Executive and Legislative. The Judiciary Review isn't mentioned in the Constitution, but was established by the Supreme Court case of Marbury v. Madison. Alright, enough about the Federalists and their papers. The Anti-Federalists were those who opposed the Constitution. Remember, the Constitution that was sent to the states did not have any amendments like the Bill of Rights. 
the reasons they did not approve the Constitution, they believed the new government would be too strong and gives the executive branch too much power. The methods of electing the president and the Senate remove the government removed the government away from the people. They believed it wasn't going to be, quote, government by the people, for the people, unquote. There was nothing in the Constitution to protect individual freedoms and liberties. Some states actually ratified the Constitution without the Bill of Rights. Delaware was the first state to do so on December 7, 1787. New Jersey, Connecticut, Georgia, Pennsylvania followed soon after. Massachusetts was a hard state to pass the Constitution with a lot of anti-federalists there. They ratified it on February 17, 1788 by a vote of 187 to 168. In June, New Hampshire became the ninth state to approve of it, and by now it is legally allowed to go into effect. When, Mass when Massachusetts ratified the Constitution, the state proposed a series of amendments for the Constitution to guarantee individual rights of the Americans. The first Congress approved a series of 12 amendments. They were written by James Madison. Ten of the 12 were ratified in 1789 and became known as the Bill of Rights. Here is the first, here's the ten amendments that you all know. First, freedom of speech, press, petition, and assembly. This was originally the third. You can say whatever you want. The government isn't going to stop it. You can voice your disagreement with the government. The Supreme Court has put limits to this, like threats and clear and present danger, like you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You know, things that can cause panic when not needed. Second Amendment, originally the fourth, right to bear arms, which have seen a lot of fight back on what that means in the present, limiting citizens on how many rounds your guns can have or what gun you can have and how you can get that gun. And I'm not gonna state my opinion here, about the arguments of these amendments, I'm only going to state what the argument is, and you're going to have to figure it out yourself. Third, no recording troops in time of war. This goes back to where the colonies were for. This goes back to when the colonies were forced to house and feed the British soldiers that were in Boston. Fourth, no illegal search or seizures. The police or government can't search your things or take your property without proper warrants, which has to be attained by the court. While there are some limitations about probable cause, but the courts determine whether that probable cause is legitimate or not. And if it wasn't legitimate, they can be fired and other consequences. Fifth, right to remain silent. Don't have to tell on yourself in court. Sixth, right to a speedy trial. You don't have to sit in jail for years and years while waiting for a trial to happen. For some, they can bail out, but for others, depending on the crime, you won't be able to. And this is also Eighth Amendment of bail. Seventh, right to have a civil trial by jury. This also allows you to sue. Now, in the full text, it was a minimum of $20. But before inflation economic rise, that $20 was a, worth a lot in that time. Eighth, no cruel or unusual punishment and no excessive bail. Excessive bail all depends on the person in the crime that was committed and if the person is a danger to the society. But with checks and balances, the courts will determine if a bail is excessive or not. But the courts also set the bail, so it's tricky. Continue on with the night, not all rights are held in the Bill of Rights. In the Tenth Amendment, was not all powers are given to the national government. Some are saved for the states. Now before we move on, let's talk about the two that were rejected. The original first one was about Congress 
apparently we didn't sell that in the Constitution. This would be the ratio of population representing us, which read, quote, after the first enumeration required by the first article of the Constitution, there shall be one representative for every 30,000 until the number shall amount to 100, out to which the proportion, proportion shall be so regulated by Congress that there shall be not less than 100 representatives, nor less than one representative for every 40,000 persons, until the number of representatives shall amount to 200. After the proportion shall be so regulated by Congress that there shall be not less than 200 representatives, nor more than one representative for every 50,000 persons, end quote. That was proposed that was not ratified was about money, and it read, quote, No law bearing the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representative shall have intervened, end quote. Now, this might sound familiar if you know the amendments. This one is now the 27th Amendment, which was passed in 1992. And this concludes our portion of important documents. The Constitution has been ratified, and they needed to elect a president. The election process was done a little differently, as it is done today. Our college did vote for a president, but nowadays we elect the electors to vote on a president. I'll do a whole video about the complicated electoral college later on. The electors chosen by the states unanimously voted for a president, George Washington. He accepted even though he initially rejected the job. But why? I'll explain why he rejected the job and how he created the presidency from sort of scratch on the next episode of History Docs. I'll see you later.